Hi everyone and welcome back to Where Joy Blooms, a podcast where we talk openly and honestly about all things pregnancy, birth and parenting. Our aim is to have real discussions about the challenges, highs, lows and experiences that we all may face along this phase in our lives as parents or parents-to-be. We hope this podcast can help you feel better supported and less alone as you embark or navigate parenthood. And if there's a topic you'd like us to cover, then don't hesitate to flick us a message or an email. We'll put the details in the description. Okay, guys, welcome back. Today we are going to be listening to Steph's story, which is trying to conceive with PCOS. Yeah, Steph actually went through quite a lot to get her, bub. I am so, like, amazed at her mental strength. But, yeah, I mean, this was a baby that was... A long time coming and I'm so happy that they finally got it. Yes, her story is so interesting. I unfortunately wasn't able to record with Brit that day. Mum life and going back to work definitely hit pretty hard and it meant I wasn't able to jump on and listen to Steph's story but I've gone back and re-listened to it and it's good. Yeah, unfortunately, you know, we just have to record when people are free. We're often, you know, chatting to other mums as well that have quite young kids. And so we're working around multiple nap schedules, time zone differences. Um, So, yeah, sometimes it's just not possible that we can all jump on at the same time. Yeah, exactly. But anyway, we hope you enjoy. And if you have any questions um, about the IVF process or anything that Steph talks about, feel free to reach out and we can always pass those on. Perfect. Let's dive in. All right, everyone. So today we have Steph joining us on the podcast. She's a first-time mum to little Nora. Um, And I'll let her introduce herself and tell us about her family. Hello. Um, Yeah, so I've got a little 14-month-old daughter. Um, She was conceived through IVF last year. Um, Yeah, so we had a pretty wild journey to get to her. Um, But we, yeah, we got there in the end and we're hoping to go for another one sometime this year as well. Oh, that will be exciting. Do you think you're going to have to go through the IVF path again? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So kind of take us back to when you started trying to conceive. Did you try for quite a while before you sort of sort out some help or um no we so I have very severe PCOS which I've had since I was about 13 years old so um we always knew that it would likely it would be likely that we would need to get some help um and we would have some fertility treatments of some sort so we actually started trying um in 2017 and a few months before we got married we decided to start trying And we knew by the end of that year, um, we sort of tried for six months casually um, while we went through sort of getting married and having a honeymoon and things like that. And then when it didn't happen, um, we went to my GP and and said, look, we've been trying for six months. She obviously knew all my history uh, and she basically said, yep, you're going to need some assistance. Let's get you on to a fertility specialist. Um, And usually they say that you've got to have been trying for 12 months before you can get fertility treatment um but she basically said just lie (laughs) she said they're not going to know whether you're um you know how long you've been trying so you're definitely going to need assistance it's not a matter of you know it's just taking a little bit longer um so yeah so we started down the fertility journey 
at that point with a fertility specialist um, and we tried for quite some time doing different medications, trying to get me to ovulate, different strengths of the medication. Um, I don't get a period naturally, so we always had to um, induce a period with medication as well, with progesterone. So, um, yeah, it was always just a long process. Every sort of cycle sort of took that little bit longer because we had to go through those extra steps. Yeah, definitely. I was going to actually ask you, like, if you got diagnosed with PCS when you were quite young, like, did you have a regular cycle through sort of your teenage years and things like that? Or you've always been? No, never. Yeah, no, never. I I think I got my period quite early. I think I was about 12 when I first got my period. Um, and then, like, I think I went a year then without getting a, another period. And so I would go long, long, long stints without getting a period. Uh, and and during my adolescence and my early or my late teens, it sort of didn't it didn't matter. You know, I was quite happy to not have a period. Yeah, that's um, and so I was, but I was also on the pill as well. So they put me on a pill anyway. Um, and yeah, but that um, once we sort of started to try, then we sort of knew that um, yeah, it wasn't going to happen naturally. Yeah, definitely. So when you went and saw the fertility specialists, what did they sort of recommend as the first point of call? Like, did you have to go through all these different tests first and your partner go through tests to see what the issue was exactly? Or were they pretty confident that it was just, you know, because of your history with PCOS? Yeah, I mean, they were pretty confident that it was my PCOS, but we obviously did all the the tests anyway, um, all the normal fertility tests. My husband did tests. There was nothing, no issues on his side. Um, so we knew that, yeah, it was basically all on my side and, and that it was related to the PCOS um, and not ovulating. So basically we worked out that I wasn't ovulating. Um, and so even when we were trying to induce ovulation, I still wasn't ovulating. So that's where they... Um, we got to after quite a few years um, and they, um, she basically said, look, your next step is IVF. Um, and at that stage, I mean, like everyone, you sort of get this, this notion that IVF is this huge, you know, tens of thousands of dollars per round. And we just never thought that that was really in our capability. Yeah. Um, so that was pretty devastating when we got to that point. Um, and then a friend of mine that I went to school with, she actually shared on her socials that she conceived her little boy through IVF um, and that, and so I actually reached out to her and I just said, oh, you know, who did you go through? How did it work? Um, and, yeah, she basically introduced me to the bulk billing um, side of IVF and that that's something that's available in Australia now, which is just amazing. And it's not free. Um, by any means like it's you know we're still out thousands of dollars per round but it's not anywhere near the astronomical amount that um, private IVF is yeah yeah because you always do hear about IVF and think that it's going to cost a lot of money and it's quite sad that you know that is out of a lot of people's reach so it's good to have something like that that just kind of takes some of the cost out of it definitely yeah, absolutely. It just makes it so much more achievable for um, for people that are that are needing it. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And so, how did your IVF, I guess, journey go? Did it take quite a while, even after starting the treatment, or did it happen pretty quickly? So we had a pretty big delay um, before we could even start it. So 
once I found out that it was something that would be viable for us, we then found out that um, there's a restriction on for, I'm not sure if it is for private IVF as well, but definitely for the bulk bill clinics, they have a restriction on how, on your BMI. So you've got to have a BMI under 35. And because I'd had PCOS since I was um, barely a teenager, I have always been overweight. I've always had insulin resistance. Um, and so I, yeah, that then became the next hurdle that we had to get over because I had a um, higher BMI than what the requirement was. Yeah. Um, and so that was another sort of blow because it was just sort of a devastating oh my gosh, here we go again. Like I've never been able to lose weight. I've always eaten, you know, really healthily and um, I've always been active, but I just could never shift the weight. Um, So I ended up going down the route. I ended up having weight loss surgery um, in 2020, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And that was basically so that I could, we could do IVF so that I could lose enough weight to be able to to do the IVF. So I had that um, during the beginning stages of COVID, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, and then in January, must have been 21, yeah, January 21 was when we started, finally got to actually start our IVF journey. Yeah. Um, so it was quite a long road between when we started and even getting to IVF. Um, yeah, wow. So then we finally started, we went and did egg collection um and so you, you know you got had to, had to do all the tests and extra tests for jordan and all the usual things um and then yeah we finally got to start our our ivf journey but we are um and this is kind of important for the next part i guess but we're in new south wales which is and um in a little coastal town which is about four hours south of brisbane um so across the border in new south wales so yeah, we started our IVF journey during COVID, um, went up to Brisbane, stayed with my family up there and did our egg collection. But because I do have severe PCOS, I um, I ended up with um, OHS, which is um, hyperstimulation syndrome in my ovaries. So basically because I had so many follicles, they were um, too big and my ovaries were um overstimulated and so they decided that it wouldn't be viable for me to do a fresh transfer after that egg collection um so from that egg collection we got two frozen embryos um we came home we put them in the fruit they went in the freezer um and then we came home and had to wait for a cycle to then go for a frozen transfer Mm -hmm. so we did that and obviously during this time COVID was ramping up um but we yeah started our frozen cycle um down here in new south wales did the medications did the tests um had the ultrasounds the blood tests and then the day that the clinic said yep you're good to go come up um in two days time and we'll do the transfer um so had all that booked in and then the next day um queensland closed their borders for covid oh no yeah, so we basically had to cancel the whole thing, put everything on hold um, for seven months. So everything, wow. yeah, just got, yeah, it was absolutely devastating. I was just so, um, yeah, I guess just 
at a loss of how does this keep happening? How do we keep having these hurdles? How do we keep having these hoops that we have to jump through um, every time? And we tried to apply for exemptions and we tried to um, find a way around it. But, yeah, there was just at the time the clinic was still operating but we just couldn't get across the border. Mm, That's so devastating, especially because it took such a long time to even get to that point. Like, you know, you had to go through a whole weight loss surgery, which is a big process in itself. Um, I'm sure it would have been a really big mental battle for you, like even just hearing like, oh, you know, you're too overweight to be able to do the treatment straight away. Yeah, yeah. And it was, it was kind of, it was sort of this, well, I need IVF because, I have this PCOS, but I can't do IVF because I'm overweight because I have the PCOS. So it was sort of like, you know, if I, yeah, it's, it made it really um, mentally challenging and and mentally disheartening. And you just feel like, you know, your body's a failure and that's how you're constantly feeling is that, you know, every step of the way your body is failing you and it doesn't matter what you're doing. It's, you know, it's not responding the way that everybody else's so that's how it feels yeah exactly and how was your husband in all of this was he kind of feeling the strain too or was he finding it like a little bit hard to kind of understand how you felt going through all of this um no he was really really supportive like he he wanted it really bad as well um but he knew that you know we just had to kind of keep putting one foot in front of the other and I guess um in most relationships, it's always sort of the woman having to drive it, isn't it? Like, you know, we're the yeah. ones that have to do all the tests, we're the ones that have to do all the medications, we're the ones that have to make the appointments and go to the appointments and do all those sort of things. So, um, you know, there was only so much support that he could do or so only so much that he could do to help. You know, he couldn't have the surgeries, he couldn't do the injections, he couldn't, you know, do all these things. He did everything that he could and he came to every appointment that he could. But, um at the end yeah, of the day, just, he wasn't the one carrying the baby. Yeah, well, he wasn't the one carrying the load, yeah, absolutely, of even getting there. Mm, exactly. <laughs> yeah, I feel like in a lot of pregnancies, regardless of the journey, sometimes, you know, the male or the, the partner that's not going to be the pregnant one will often feel a little bit, like, helpless because there's not much mm. that they can do. There's not much that they can sort of contribute. Um, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's, yeah. Um, it can be harder and I think it can be really disconnecting for them as well especially during um, like pregnancy and things like that they just don't understand what's happening and yeah one thing that we ended up doing which I guess I'll get to later is that we ended up doing a hypnobirthing course when I was pregnant and I think think that really really helped we did it together and I think that really really helped him feel a bit more connected and a bit more um, gave him a bit more of a role I guess yeah yeah that's nice just brought you guys a bit closer and made him feel a little bit part of the experience and part of you know the birth when it when it would come yeah and how to help I guess yeah yeah so (coughs) um let's go forward a little bit to when you actually did end up conceiving so how long did it take to get to that point right from the start to when it finally happened um, yeah, so we basically got locked out of the border for seven months. Um, it opened in December and then we went up and did our frozen transfer in January of 2022. Um, and so that was our first transfer with our first frozen embryo. Um, and luckily that embryo became Nora. So that one stuck. So we were incredibly lucky 
um, that, yeah, are basically our first round or our first transfer, as much as it took sort of five years to get there, um, that, that that first IVF round, I guess, was successful. Yeah. And so was Nora the frozen embryo from seven months prior? Correct. Yep. So we got two frozen embryos from that from the one egg from that egg collection. Um, yeah. And then Nora is one and we've still got one up in the freezer. Oh, nice. Well, that's good. I guess, yeah, it kind of worked out in the end being a bit more of a quicker process once you actually got got to do that transfer. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We were very lucky. And so from there, because I know that like IVF, obviously, when they do the transfer, they know what your dates are. Um, everything's, you know, very time dependent and things like that. Did mm-hmm. you have to have multiple scans afterwards? Like, did you have like a dating scan type thing or just checking how everything was progressing? Yeah, you pretty much have all the same from there. It's pretty much the same as a normal pregnancy. So, um, yeah, you're right. So rather than you'd still have a dating scan, but I guess when you have IVF, you obviously know exactly when she, when you were, con- when it was conceived and therefore what the actual exact due date um, is rather than going off a dating scan or your period or things like that. So, yeah. Yeah. So she was actually due on my birthday. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wasn't bored on my birthday, but yeah, she was due on my birthday. Yep. Oh, well, that's cool. That's kind of like a nice little, little thing, isn't it? Yeah. Wow. Nice happy birthday to me. Yeah. (laughs) So, so you had a dating scan. Everything obviously went well. Um, did you do the first trimester screening or for IVF? Do they do any like NIPT stuff? Yeah, not not for IVF, but we did do the NIPT test. Um, and yeah, we opted for for that. So yeah, and then it was just all the normal scans, I guess, that you would normally do. Yeah. And did you guys decide to find out the gender before she was born? Yeah, we did. So we, we got the gender um, at that 10-week NIPT test. Yes. Um, and, yeah, so we got the gender out of that. We were always going to find out, though. Yeah, fair enough. It gives you a bit of a chance to be prepared. And I think sometimes uh, it takes a little bit of the stress out of, you know, like picking a name and yeah, all of that kind and of I th- stuff as well. I think for us as well, it really helped us connect with her as well. Like we just felt more connected. We could kind of envision her. We could talk about, we called, so when um, when she was transferred in, we started calling the embryo, which obviously ended up being Nora. But while I was pregnant, we called her Squishy. Uh, yep. So, um, yeah, so it just kind of helped us, I guess, bond with her a little bit more when she, when we knew what the gender was. Yeah. Yeah. I found that as well. Like we always wanted to find out the gender with both of ours. And I just found that it really helped with the bonding experience, particularly for my husband, because then, yeah, he could start to feel a little bit connected to her and yeah, it just makes it a bit more personal, I think, rather than calling, you know, it and it. it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so where did you go from there? Did you go through the public or private system in terms of midwife and obstetrician care or how does it work through IVF? Do they kind of take you through the whole journey or do they then take you on to, you know, your normal GP or? No. So once, basically once you're pregnant, I can't remember the exact weeks, but I think it's probably around that nine week scan sort of 
that period. Once you've sort of done that IVF, um, they sort of call it graduating from um, the clinic and then you just go on to as if it's a normal pregnancy. But you are classified, which I sort of don't agree with, but you, you're classified as a high-risk pregnancy. Um, yeah. And I was classified that as well. So I didn't mention this before, but before I had my um, weight loss surgery, I had type 2 diabetes as well. So, but then once I had that surgery, I reversed that and I hadn't had it since. So I'd had sort of three or, oh, you know, two years where I had, hadn't had um, any diabetes um, at all. But because I'd previously had it, I was also considered a high-risk pregnancy. So the issue that I found with that is that I really wanted to go through the midwifery program that we have here, yep. um, which is through the, the public hospital. But because I was considered a high-risk pregnancy, I wasn't eligible for that, which really, I guess, um, yeah, that really upset me. I really felt like I needed that. I needed that one-on-one -on -one kind of support and care. Mm -hmm. um, and on the other side of that was that my fertility specialist that I had been going through before I went to IVF, she wouldn't take me on as a client through my pregnancy because I wasn't high risk enough. So she only took on quite, you know, more high risk clients, but she said, no, you're fine. So she wouldn't take me on. So I was yeah. kind of in this middle ground where I couldn't go through the midwifery clinic and have that one-on-one -on -one support, but I couldn't go through um, uh, like an OBGYN because I wasn't high risk enough. So yeah, yeah that was well, really, really affected me. Yeah, it was, it was. And I really struggled through my pregnancy um, with with anxiety, which is not something that I'd ever brought into, not something I'd ever had prior to pregnancy. So it's not something that I'd ever suffered with or, or that I brought into the pregnancy. It was something that, um, yeah, I guess I developed in the pregnancy. And that really would have been eased, I feel, if I'd had that one-on-one -on -one support. And I had quite a few friends that were pregnant at the same time and they were, um, you know, they were all in the program or they had been in the program with previous kids and yeah, what they would tell me about, you know, being able to message the midwife and, and things like that. I just think that would have really eased my mind and helped. And so that was really frustrating for me not being able to have that support. Yeah, I can definitely understand where you're coming from there. I felt the exact same. Like our very first pregnancy ended in a miscarriage, um, which was mm. due to a array of uh, abnormalities and ended up um, being diagnosed uh, with Down syndrome, um, mm -hmm. which then automatically put my next pregnancy as high risk. And she mm. was completely fine. I had a beautiful pregnancy, healthy, everything was perfect. And, yeah, I couldn't get into the midwifery group. Yeah, exactly. And now, you know, every pregnancy, like, you know, if you just decide to have another one, you're always going to be in that category. And I'm the same. I'll always be yeah. in that category of being too high risk for, yeah, for that program, even though there was no issues during my pregnancy. Um, my labour was perfectly fine. Everything was perfectly fine. Um, I'll always be put in that box, which I really rebelled against. I really, yeah, fought against. Yeah, I feel like with a lot of um, the health care for pregnant women, it is, you know, you advocating for yourself and kind of fighting for what you want because I feel like a lot of the time they just kind of fob you off and especially when you're a first-time mum, mm. they kind of like try to influence your thinking 
into what they want. Yeah, absolutely. And I remember going into the pregnancy and my husband and I would have a conversation and and we'd sort of always say, you know, we'll always take the medical professional's um, advice, we'll always follow that, which we sort of did. But throughout the pregnancy, I gradually became more and more, um, I guess, disgruntled with the whole system. And I just thought, you know what, I'm just a box that you're ticking, you know, I'm not, you're not actually supporting me. You know, we had lots of... Um, uh, like doctor appointments at the hospital and midwife appointments. And the midwife appointments were great, but all of the um, the actual doctor appointments were, you know, we were in and out in 30 seconds. They just looked at our file and didn't even really look at us. And then, you know, we just felt like a box that was being ticked and that was it. And, um, yeah, that was really, really sad and, and not helpful for us at all. <laughs> It no, just, you know, exactly. I just felt like we were there for them to tick their box rather than, you know, there for us for us to get any help. And a lot of the times I think for new mums, like we don't know what questions to ask. We don't know what what we should know or, you know, we're sort of looking for that guidance that um, isn't necessarily there. Yeah, exactly. And it's hard when you do feel like you're just being treated like everyone else when really it should be quite personalised to you know, your pregnancy specifically because everyone's pregnancy mm. is not the same. So, yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. I remember I had a conversation at one point um, with a nurse. So I did the, um, the, glucose, the glucose test for um, the, oh, what's it called? Gestational diabetes. Um, gestational diabetes, yeah did that test um, and the first time I did it, I threw it all up um, and so it sort of became null and void. And then the second time I did it, I managed to keep it down, but um, I was like one point over in the middle. So they take the three readings. So they take the reading before, they take them reading during, and then they take the reading at two hours, I think it is. Yep. Um, and that middle reading, so the two were fine. But then that middle reading, um, I was like one point over. So I instantly got put into the box of having gestational diabetes, even though, so because I'd had diabetes previously, I had been self-monitoring my blood glucose levels at home because I obviously had the equipment. Yeah. Um, and because I knew that that was a possibility that, you know, I had this history of diabetes, it's possible that I could develop um, GT um you know, during the pregnancy. So I had been self-monitoring myself and never had a reading out of range. And then I did this um, glucose test and suddenly I was one point. And the ridiculous thing is, is that if I was in New Zealand, they, it wouldn't be like the ranges are, are different. And so, you know, it's this, it's this loophole here that suddenly I'm put into this box, another box where, um, I've got gestational diabetes and that then changes the protocols for my pregnancy again and my birth. Yeah. So sure. yeah, that, that really angered me and I had to go through um, the, um, the diabetes nurse at the hospital. And I, I remember sitting down with her and I, I sort of went into it, I guess, with my back up a bit. Cause I was like, I don't have gestational diabetes. I've tested my bloods, you know, I've had, um, you know, bread and pasta and, and all these things and my glucose has been fine. Um, yeah, so I basically went into this meeting with, I guess, my back up a bit and, and we sort of had this conversation and she's, we talked about my diet and 
things like that. And she's like, oh, it seems like you're doing all the right diet things, but you'll need to um, log your your bloods four, three times a day or four times a day, whatever it was, every day for the, you know, for the rest of your pregnancy. And you've got to submit your bloods um, every Sunday for us to check. And I just thought, I'm not doing that. Like, I don't need to. Like, I know, you know, unless I, I'm suddenly getting readings that are out of range. Yeah. This is just unnecessary and it's just an extra stress. Um, yeah, so basically I, I went into that diabetes meeting with my backup and I remember having that conversation with the lady and she, um, so I actually work as a, um, as a teacher's aide yeah. and at the time I was studying to be a teacher, which I've now, um, gone down a different path, but, um, yeah. And, and I had, she had asked what I do and I sort of explained kind of the limitations with me being able to test and things like that. And. So she knew that I was a teacher's aide and I basically explained that, um, you know, how I felt about this and, and that, you know, I was self-monitoring and that, you know, I haven't had a reading out of range. And anyway, and um, I remember her saying to me, she's like, oh, well, you're a teacher, you know what it's like, you know, you've just got to um, follow all the protocols and, um, you know, do the same program for everyone. And I actually stopped and I said, actually, no, you know, we that's not what we do as teachers. That's not how we work. We cater for every individual child. We differentiate for, um, you know, every every student that we have because everybody's different and that's not what I'm getting through the healthcare system at all. That's not how it works. Yeah. Um, and you're putting me in this box that I just don't fit in and that's now going to affect me for not only this pregnancy and labour but every pregnancy that I have afterwards. So, yeah, and then when we were leaving she said, I said, oh, is there anything else I need to do? And, um, you know, nicely, like, I, you know, we I was all fine. Um, and she said, no, nope, that's all. I think I've ticked all the boxes and that was just it for me. I just thought, yep, you have. <laughs> You've yeah. ticked the box. You can go on with your day. Yeah, yeah. Yep, she kind of just confirmed exactly what you were thinking. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But, yeah, anyway, I think everyone has their own experiences and um, I think hopefully hopefully we are kind of moving into an era where people are, you know, there's doulas and um, private midwives and these midwifery groups that sort of operate a bit differently that people can get that more individualised care. Yeah, definitely. I feel like the whole gestational diabetes space is a little bit, uh, I don't know if if it's just because they've recently lowered the levels. So yeah. it's a lot easier for people to fall into that GD category. But Absolutely. it just seems like more and more people are being diagnosed with it when in actual fact they've never had a, like, you know, they're monitoring it every day mm. and they've never had any high readings, they've never had any issues. And, exactly. Yeah. And like I followed it, I, I did do the readings constantly um, and I never once during my whole pregnancy ever had a reading even close to being um, out of range. So without, you know, out of that normal range. So, you know, I just, to me, I just didn't have it. Like it was the, the glue, the amount of glucose that they pump into you at that test is so astronomical yeah. that there was no way that in my daily eating, I was ever going to eat that amount of um, glucose in one meal or yeah. even in a day, really. Like it was just, it's so astronomical that, yeah, it's just not something that um, that was going to really affect me. Yeah, exactly right. One of my friends is pregnant at the moment, actually, and she didn't want to do the gestational diabetes test with the drink. So she's just doing the yeah. at-home monitoring. 
yeah um instead and yeah like obviously everything's been fine but yeah that's just one of the things that she took out of her first pregnancy because she was very very sick throughout basically the entire pregnancy she did not tolerate that drink very well Mm. and then she you know later found out that it's actually an optional test you don't have to do it at all if you don't want to Absolutely, um, you know, yeah. Things like that. And she's like, it's just all of this kind of stuff that they never tell you. They make it seem like you have to do this and you don't have a choice. Yes, exactly, exactly. It's sort of not expressed to you that everything is an option, everything is a choice, it's your body, you know, and as long as you're educating yourself and that you know what the the ramifications are or the, um, you know, the consequences, I guess, of not doing these things, then I think that, you know, it should be more... Um, I guess, more explained to us that we do have agency over our own bodies and we do have agency over the choices that we make during labour and birth. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I pregnancy. Think, I think they need to give us, uh, you know, some more in-depth information and have these discussions with us so that we can make educated choices rather than, I don't know what it was like for you during your pregnancy, but with my second, they pretty much just sent me a whole bunch of things via text message and were like, um, you have a task to complete online, you click onto it, mm. it'll be like read a document, tick that you've read it. Like it wasn't yeah, actually right. them personally giving me the information. Yeah, or talking you through it or explaining yeah. it. or No one yeah, discussing absolutely. it with me. It was kind of like yeah. you read this and then Here's you a just, just say that you've read it. And yeah, how many absolutely. people are just going to tick that and have not have read it at all? Yeah, absolutely. Or read it and just not understood it. Yeah. You know, not... Yeah. yeah, or going on to do their own research because um, during the coming to the end of my pregnancy, I um, so when you do IVF, the general guideline is that they won't let you go over term. So they will they, and this is the terminology that they won't let you go over term, which I think is is another step in the well. Actually, what do you mean you won't let me? It's my body. I'm going to choose if I be induced or not yeah but that's sort of the the um the terminology that's used is that yeah they don't like they don't let you go over 40 weeks and I remember having a conversation with the doctors at that time and I said why like what what is the what is the reason behind not being able to go um past full term and they said to me oh there's a chance um that the there's a higher risk that your placenta will start to degrade um, which obviously will affect the baby. And I said, and I was like, okay. And I said, what's the what's the chances? Like, what's the statistics? Um, and basically, I went home and did all my own research, and I read a whole bunch of um, medical journals and case studies, and and the the actual risk is so the the risk um, normally is zero point five percent. And then the risk with IVF is 1%. Okay. So it's literally a 0.5%. So, yeah, it's double the risk, but it's still such a small risk that it's going to happen. Um, but they don't explain that to you? No. They you know, don't. they just say, oh, you've got, twi- you know, you've got an increased risk or you've got double the risk of your placenta degrading after 40 weeks. But they don't explain to you that that's actually such a small percentage of a risk. Yeah, exactly. Because when you hear the word like, you know, double the risk, you think that, oh, that's quite high. It's huge. Yeah. 
yeah and it's it's not yeah it's not yeah yeah and actually the risk of going of having to be induced or having to have a um you know a medical c uh, emergency c-section the risks of those are much higher than than that yeah exactly right so I guess let's go forward to your birth then while we're sort of on the topic of it. Did you have a natural birth? Did you go into labour spontaneously? Yeah, yeah. So I really struggled, um, as I said before, I really struggled with my with anxiety through the pregnancy. Um, and I had a lot of panic attacks and hysterical crying. And so it was, yeah, it was a really hard time for me in every scan I yeah was just um beside myself and I just kept saying I just kept thinking like why why am I like this like why is this happening you know I'm not an anxious person why can't I just be happy because everyone would say to you just be just be happy and just enjoy your pregnancy and my husband actually um hit the nail on the head and basically said you know, you've never been able to trust your body before. You've never been able to um, depend on your body and and know that it's going to do the right thing. You know, every stage of every stage of our conception um, has been, you know, you've had to fight against your body. And so now that you're pregnant, you're actually just expected to let all that go and trust your body and trust that it's going to do the right thing and trust that it's going to nurture this baby and yeah, so that was kind of a nail on the head and I found that going into birth and coming towards that that end of my pregnancy, it was kind of a really healing thing for me of going, actually, I can do this and, and um, you know, my body can do this and, and it's carried this baby and, and it's perfectly healthy. You know, there's not a thing wrong with it during the whole pregnancy and every scan that, um, yeah, it was really healthy. So, yeah, so as I mentioned before, we did... Um, hypnobirthing a hypnobirthing course which was just amazing and it was just totally changed our view of going into labor and um, made both of us feel really really prepared um so yeah basically we got to the end of the pregnancy um I had a stretch and sweep done at 39 weeks um and that didn't do anything Mm-hmm. And then I went into spontaneous labour about five days later um, and went into labour at 10.30 on the Sunday night and then I basically laboured at home the whole for 24 hours. Um, so we just stayed at home. We live quite close to the hospital. We're only sort of um, five minutes from the hospital, so not far at all. Um, and so we really wanted to stay home for as long as possible Um yeah, so we laboured at home and then eventually my husband was like, no, I think, you know, I think it's time. I think we need to go in. Mm-hmm. So we packed up the car and, and went to the hospital and things were kind of starting to ramp up, um, got into the labour ward. We were the only people in the labour ward at the time. Um, so that was really nice. We yes, had two midwives. Nice. Yeah, we had a, a midwife and then a student midwife who was just, they were both just beautiful. And, yeah, so we kind of got set up and, um, you know, I had lots, I had my, like, uh, my mantras playing and music and my husband was kind of massaging my back and, um, you know, had candles going and things. And I opted not to do a water birth because I'm not really a baths 
bath person anyway. So I decided not to do that. So we're kind of just walking around the room and I was getting in and out of the shower and having that water on my back. Yeah. And yeah, in my head, I was just, in my head, I was like, things are starting to ramp up. Like I'm starting to be in quite a lot of pain. And so I said to the midwife and I had a birth plan mm-hmm. um, and on it, I, I think I'd, I think I put on it that, um, you know, I didn't really want to be checked unless it was necessary. And anyway, that kind of went out the window because I got in there <laughs> and I was like, no, I, I think you need, like, can you check me? I need to know how far I am because if I'm only like, you know, two centimetres dilated, then, you know, we're going to have to wheel the epidural in, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, which I wasn't against at all, even though like I had a birth plan and I'd done hypnobirthing, I wasn't against having um, pain relief at all or anything like that. Yeah, you're just um, open-minded. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, um, yeah, but I said to the I said to the midwife like, can we can we check how far along I am? And she said, no, like let's not, like let's just keep going. She said you're in very early labour. Um, you know, I don't think you're very far along. Like let's just keep going, and um, you know, I don't want to check you and dishearten you. And she said, you know, you're in you're in really early labour. You're fine. Yeah, And in my head, but I'm like, oh my gosh, like I am not fine. <laughs> and so anyway, eventually convinced her, we got on the bed and she checked me and she said, uh, I'm just going to go and get the head midwife. Oh, and gosh. I was like, okay. And in my head, that's when I started to panic. I was like, oh my gosh, something's wrong. Yeah. And I said, oh, why? And she said, oh, I just can't find your cervix. And me in my state of, you know, labour and not knowing what's going on and pain and whatever, I think I said, well, what happened? Did it fall out? <laughs> I just thought, what do you mean you can't find it? Where did it go? <laughs> and she said, well, it either means that you're fully dilated or I just can't find it. Like I'm just not like feeling it. And so she went and got the head midwife and, yeah, sure enough, I was fully dilated um, and basically, yeah, ready to start pushing and ready to go. So, yeah, that was pretty wild. She said to me afterwards, she said, we were going to send you home. Like when you came in, you were so calm, you were meditating, you were, you know, totally in the zone. You were, you know, really calm. You could talk through your contractions. We were going to send you home because we thought you had hours and hours and hours to go. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so from there, basically, yes, um, I laboured in and out of the shower for a while. Um, and then I never really got the urge to push. And I don't know whether I started pushing too early. I think I might have. Um, but I think I just got into my head that, oh, okay, well, I'm fully dilated, so I should be having this baby now. Yeah. And, yeah, so ended up um, having Nora on all fours. And I remember I just kind of lost my mojo during the pushing and I just was – you know, I was like, she's stuck. She's not coming out. Like, you've got to get her out. She's stuck. And and the midwife's, you know, so they're going, no, she's fine. She's not stuck. You know, she's coming down. She's totally fine. And, um, yeah, so they really helped talk me through it. So that was really helpful. Oh, that's good. I guess it would be hard. You, you can never know how you're going to feel in that moment. Like, labour is one of those things that is just so unknown. You don't know how long it's going to last for how it's going to go, how painful it's going to be. So it would be so hard to, you know, lose your your focus and your zone um, at any time during that during that phase. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, you really just don't know what to expect. And I think I've really, really prepared for the whole, um, you know, labor part that I didn't really prepare for the pushing part. And so, yeah, when I got there, I just cracked it. (laughs) I was just like, I can't do this. And I think I said to my husband, like, why do I have to do everything on my own? And (laughs) it was just, oh yeah. But yeah, anyway, she came out quite quickly. Um, and I think that's when I say that I think I started pushing too early. Um, yeah, I don't think I was pushing for very long and I pushed her down probably too quickly and she came out quite um, kind of bruised um, and, like, you know, with the things, like well, I can't remember what they're called, but, you know, where they've got sort of the burst blood vessels around their eyelids yeah. and things and she had, like, a really bruised forehead and, um, yeah, so she had quite a quick and bumpy journey down the birth canal, I think. <laughs> yeah. yeah, sounds like cool it. Thing. Did, you, did you have any tears or anything like that? Yeah, so I actually tore um, at the top. So I didn't tear my perineum, um, which I didn't know this was a thing. But um, so Nora came out with her hands up around her face mm-hmm. um, and they couldn't. So usually they have that's quite normal, but they can usually like move her hands out of the way um as she's coming down and they weren't able to do that so she actually came out with her hands up around her face it was sort of like an extra pressure I guess um and also I didn't my waters never broke until I was pushing so um for a lot of the time that I was pushing I was pushing the sack um her in the sack so she was almost a mermaid baby really yeah um yeah so then yeah, so I did tear um, a little bit up the top, so I had to have a few few stitches at that point, and that was the only time I had pain relief through the whole thing was when they, they were doing the stitches. Yeah. And afterwards, did you feel, like, really sort of empowered and healed from having that complete experience? Yeah, absolutely. Like, it really did give me a lot more, um, I guess, confidence in my body and and healed that kind of disconnect between me being against my body. And it really sort of helped me go, actually, you know, my body did do the right thing and we worked together and, um, you know, my mind and my body, I guess, really connected at that time. Yeah. And being able to meditate through that labour and, um, you know, have that kind of control, I guess, really helped me to, um, yeah, to, to, to heal that bond between you know my mind and and my body yeah just gave you a bit more of a like a new appreciation for your body and what it can do and how amazing it is yeah absolutely yeah and so when Nora was born she was fine like you didn't have any issues didn't have to stay in hospital for a bit or anything like that no no nothing nothing at all she was yeah totally fine um she we weren't able to breastfeed and that was a bit of an issue for the first few days. So I think we stayed in. So she was born at 1am um, and we stayed obviously that night and then the next night and then we went home the next day. So we sort of two nights, but the first night was, you know, labour. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, and then we went home and she dropped quite a bit of weight. So then we started to have, have to supplement with a bit of formula and, um yeah so other than that but other than that yeah no there was no no issues when she was born 
Yep. Oh, that's good. And how did your sort of, I guess, fourth trimester go? Did you find that newborn period quite challenging or did you kind of go into it quite naturally and find it easy? Um, To be honest, I didn't find it as hard as I thought I would. I kind of have thought, well, had thought that I would struggle a lot more with it than I probably did. Um, Obviously, the sleep was torture. And for the first five weeks, Nora wouldn't sleep unless she was on either my husband or I. So we basically had to tag team for the first five weeks sleeping because, um, you know, they say sleep when the baby sleeps, but if the the baby doesn't sleep unless she's on you, you can't sleep either. So, yeah, yeah, so that was pretty wild for the first five weeks. But then we ended up trialling her in her own room which is right next to ours in her cot and from then on she slept through so um other than that for the first five weeks um yeah I had a really um I really can't complain about my recovery I had a perfectly fine recovery um I made sure that I ate lots of nourishing foods and lots of warming foods and um, yeah, just tried to rest as much as possible and take it easy. And But, yeah, I really can't complain about um, my recovery or, or the fourth trimester at all. Yeah. And I guess by the time that you actually had Nora, COVID was kind of gone then, right? So you yeah. didn't have any, like, restrictions. Um, you know, you, you could have family around you or friends around you for support and things like that. Yeah, absolutely. So we could have... Um, yeah, there was no lockdowns or anything like that. The only restrictions that we had, which I was totally fine with, was that only my husband could be in the hospital. Um, yeah. No one could come and visit us in the hospital. So, yeah, it wasn't until we were home that um, my in-laws and things got to come over and, and meet her. Um, but other than that, yeah, no, there was no lockdowns or no restrictions or anything like that. So, yeah, we were pretty lucky that we it timed it that way. Yeah, that's good. Oh, beautiful. Is there anything else that you wanted to sort of bring up or discuss? Yeah, no, I don't think so. I think that was, yeah, sort of talked about the um, anxiety, I guess, going from IVF into into pregnancy because I think that's something that is often overlooked with people who do IVF. It's sort of just assumed that as soon as they're pregnant, you know, they're instantly happy and, and everything's fine and everything's normal. But I guess, you know, when you've had such a rough, trot you know rough trial to get to um conception yeah that doesn't stop at pregnancy (laughs) you know that that anxiety and that um that pressure and that um fight I guess doesn't yeah it doesn't stop once you're pregnant for sure and I think that you know sometimes there's a lot of uh, talk about oh you know after 12 weeks it's safe like it's safe to announce or it's safe to you know like you should be good the rates of miscarriage have gone down or whatever but the reality is that there's no point of pregnancy that's really safe you know we we all know Mm. that things can happen at any time and we don't want to be in that negative headspace throughout pregnancy but sometimes as a mother you can't help but you know have that anxiety and that worry that you know something's going to happen or something's not going to be quite right. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think it's, we're in a, you know, we're in a time where everything is put on social media and and there's, you know, podcasts and um, Instagrams and TV shows about, um, 
pregnancy and all the things that can obviously go right, but there's all the things that can obviously go wrong and people telling their stories. And it's so important that they are, but I also think that that can be a really, you know, we kind of need to take a bit of responsibility for our own mental health in that time. And, and it's something that I didn't do until later in my pregnancy. And I was listening to a lot of podcasts um, with a lot of birth stories and, I would hear things and go, oh, my gosh, that's going to happen to me. Like that's absolute. I remember convincing myself before the morphology scan, which I think is 20, about 20 weeks. Yeah. Um, and I remember convincing myself before the, morpho- mor- the morphology scan that her kidney was going to be um, not working and she was going to die. Like that, mm-hmm. I, It was so specific that I convinced myself of it. And I was just into, I had no evidence to say, like, you know, no one had kidney problems in our family. There was no reason to think that there would be anything wrong. Um, And then I went into that morphology scan and she asked me really pointed questions at certain times. And I just, you know, it was things like, oh, is there any like um, family history that I should know about? And it was just kind of like, why? Why are you? And they can't tell you anything in the scan. And so you just leave with this, you know, all these questions and all this unknown. And so then we had to sit with it for, you know, until we got the results, which was quite a while for us. Um, And that was sort of the worst point of my anxiety at that point because, you know, I'd convinced myself that these things were wrong. And, you know, we hear these constant stories about things going wrong and it's easy to to think that that's going to happen to us. Yeah. So I think, you know, we yeah, we just have to take a bit of responsibility for our own mental health and, um, you know, if if we think that we're going to be triggered by something or something's going to affect us, you know, maybe don't listen to it, <laughs> maybe yeah, turn it off. exactly right. I think, like, you're right with all the social media, all the resources we have available to us, even Google, like, I find mm. that, you know, if you've got a slight pain or twinge or something, you Google it and then, oh, oh, my God, all of a sudden. This yeah, is what cancer rolls up on the screen. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> And we just we just naturally jump to the worst possible conclusion. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's so unknown and you don't know what's happening inside your body at the time. And I think that's a really hard thing for us to to relax about, especially if you've had a you know a hard time getting there, that you know you don't have any control over what's happening. You can't see the baby, you can't always feel the baby until at the end stages. So um yeah, it's really hard to kind of let go and relax and and trust that everything's going to be okay yeah for sure and I feel like as a mum like once you become a mum I feel like the moment you find out you're pregnant or sometimes even when you know that that's what you want like when you've started trying or whatever like something inside of you just shifts and you just shift into this like I don't know ball of anxiety and yeah you know you just want like hyper vigilant hyper yeah (laughs) you just want what's absolutely child and yeah I I feel like since I've become a mum, I am just like so much more emotional about everything. I cry in all movies, even when they're not yeah. sad, especially yeah. ones that are like about kids. Or Yeah. And things just hit a bit different now too. You know, you'll hear a story about something happening to a toddler. The other day, someone was telling me this story about how this toddler fell off a balcony and like they were fine. Like I think they got a broken arm or something, but like, you know, they survived. It was okay. But I just started crying because I think it just hits different when you're a mummy. You just, you know, you you picture your own child in that state, and yeah, it just yeah, it definitely hits different when you're when you're a parent. 
Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, I guess we'll finish off there. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us, Steph. It was really interesting just, you know, listening to all of the IVF stuff. I've personally never been through IVF before, so it was nice to kind of learn a little bit more about it and, yeah. Yeah. Oh, thank you for having me. for listening to today's episode guys we hope you enjoyed it if you did please leave us a review and follow us if you're not already doing so if you have a topic you want us to discuss or you want to share your story with us please let us know by sending us an email or messaging us on instagram all the links for this will be listed in our description box and we will see you next week bye